Hi, Sam here from the Curious Kaki Show. This episode was pre-recorded and we are happy to announce that since the recording of this episode, the Home Ministry and Attorney General have now declared that attempted suicides will no longer be classed as a criminal activity. Section 309 of the Penal Code, which criminalizes individuals attempting suicide, will be abolished. We would also like to preempt our listeners to possible topic triggers in this episode, such as suicide and mental health stigma. Stay safe, take care, and we hope you enjoy learning in this episode as much as we did. Be kind to yourself. I'm talking about self-compassion, right? So a lot of times we know how to be kind to other people, we know how to be compassionate to other people, but we don't usually apply it to ourselves. Welcome to The Curious Kaki Show. The show for curious minds and hungry hearts. I'm Sam. And I'm Yvonne. And on this episode, we have Amanda Xavier, a clinical psychologist, founder of Pocket of Care, TikToker, and mental health advocate. Hi, Amanda. Nice to have you here. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hi, Yvonne. Thank you for bringing me onto this podcast. I had to listen for a few episodes, and I really like the way you do this. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thanks for supporting the podcast. <laughs> well, um, I, I, I'd love to talk about how you think about our podcast, but uh, let's not waste any time and just jump straight into the business of, of this episode. So just right off the bat, um, could you tell us a little bit about, about yourself and uh, why you decided to become a psychologist? Right, sure. Um, I am a clinical psychologist, as introduced, currently working in a private company, but I spend a lot of time doing advocacy on Instagram and TikTok. Um, The reason why I wanted to become a psychologist in the first place, when I was in high school, I think I had a choice between being a doctor or being anything else, and I chose to do anything else just because I didn't want to go down that route. But I also had to figure out what is a professional field because, you know, sometimes our parents are not very open to anything outside of a professional field. And I figured out, hey, psychology could be an area that I could go in because I was already in the, not sure if you guys are familiar with this, Pembimbing Rakan Sabayo PRS club. So it's sort of a small little peer counseling club in school. Um, Yeah, so I was part of that, although not very active, but I decided to explore a bit of that, went into my degree in psychology, and then I actually worked uh, as a social worker for Mm. about a few months. And there I met uh, my boss, who was a clinical psychologist, and she actually inspired me because I saw the work she did with the kids and anybody, Mm -hmm. you know, the refugees who uh, needed help therapy-wise, and that really inspired me to actually pursue this journey as well. So I, I guess that's it. Yeah, that's how I got into this field. Okay. What was it about the way that your boss um, uh, supported the kids, the refugees with, with reading therapy that uh, inspired you to, to pursue this career path? I would have to say that before that, I wasn't very... Even though I, was, I did my degree in psychology, I have never been mm-hmm. exposed to therapy in that sense, right? So I've never oh, seen okay. it. And because I was sort of working with her as her uh, assistant, quote-unquote assistant, I got to nice. sit in with some of the sessions and see exactly what she did, the kind of approach she used, what she would do as assessments, how she would talk to these people. And I saw the journey that a lot of them had as her clients, 
and how that actually helped change and improve their mental health. So it was so intriguing yeah. because yeah. how can just talking to someone get this, uh, you know, result in this kind of effect? That's why I was right. very inspired because I actually had a kind of a hands-on lens on <laughs> viewing of this experience. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I don't know if this is something that you can speak on or, mm-hmm. you know, or know, but why is that the case that at least from what we see right in Malaysia that there are a lot of uh, graduates who graduate from uh, you know a, a psychology degree but then have yet to understand um, what therapy is like or even um, see it you know why is it not a requirement? I feel that maybe our you know our degrees don't really do a good job of promoting that just as a regular check-in <laughs> um mm which they should, I think everyone should try it out, especially because when I was in university, you know, a lot of universities have free services, right, for the students for mental health, therapy services. Yeah, yeah, especially since we have that. But I think another big thing is the stigma because Mm. even, I mean, just to admit it, when I was going to my degree as well, the only thing I thought about was like, I don't need that. I'm doing fine. That's why I can be in a psychology degree right? Wow. Like I know more about psychology and about myself. That's why I don't need to go for therapy. But that mm. is not the truth at all. And I think that stigma was so strong, maybe in a lot of people, uh, you know, even though they're going through psychology right now, because we feel like going to psychology means that I know more about myself and about people to warrant mm. me a free pass in not needing mental health help. Mm. Yeah, so I feel that so, like even though the stigma is there, even psychology graduates have it still. I guess, um, like, speaking of stigma, right, why do mm-hmm. you think there is such a big stigma in Malaysia or, like, Asia when it comes to, like, mental health? Like, when you go see a therapist, it means, like, you're crazy or, um, <laughs> you know, like, why do you think, like, and then how do we kind of overcome it as a society? That's a very good question. I think I have yet to answer this in my Instagram or TikTok. <laughs> but generally, you know, when we go back in time to where psychology and mental health first started, mm. a lot of times people thought they were devil possessions or mm. you know, a medical condition, like something was physically and biologically wrong with you. Mm. That's why they had a lot of medical procedures to, you know, drain your brain to get you to stop having these mental health issues. So when we use that and we bring in religion, there is a lot of religion in Asian countries, especially Malaysia. I think even though we're a secular country, um, we have a lot of religion here. It's not very common. Uh, I I guess the minority would be free thinkers or atheists or agnostics, right? So majority of us have a religion some way or other. And because religion is so closely tied with the belief that mental health is because you don't pray enough and you're not religious, that's why you allow this to happen. You're not relying on God to help you out of it. I think that's why the stigma still exists until this day. That's why it's so taboo for people to talk about therapy because when you mention therapy, people might think, no, no, that's only for crazy people. It's not for people who pray. It's not for people who go to church. It's not for people who go to the mosque. Um, you need to start praying more so that you don't have this issue. Mm. But that's not the case at all. I think even the most religious people could have any kind of mental health issues. 
that's from my understanding why this stigma still exists. But of course, as a society, especially Asians, we don't like to ask for help um, mm. generally, especially if it's something that makes us look very vulnerable. Mm. So bring in religion, bring in the societal standards that we Asians have. I think mm. that's why the stigma is still here. How would you actually define a mental health issue? What, as a clinical psychologist, right, um, what's your perspective on that? Um, and do you necessarily need to have a mental health issue to only see a therapist? Um, when I talk about mental health issues, I mean anything that is just currently affecting your life, right? Your emotional okay. health, your physical health, even your mental health. Um, that's what I mean like, when I say issues. And mm. of course, as a clinical psychologist, we have knowledge of what is a clinical condition and what is not. We have a, mm. we have a way of gauging that. But mm. you can definitely seek help, therapy, counseling, whatever, if you don't even meet the clinical level. You right. can still okay. have uh, an interest in just improving yourself, right? You just want to talk about things that happened in the past. You just want to talk about um, work stress, maybe burnout, all these things. Because mm-hmm. these are not mm-hmm. clinical conditions. These are not a level that requires you to have medication or a full therapy course, right? Mm-hmm. But you can still seek help because this may one day lead to a bigger mental health issue. Uh, well, I was going to ask, like, is part of the issue with mental health issue the word issue? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Because we, 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 we phrase it as such, uh, uh, an issue with my mental health, right? So yeah. it means that I have a problem or I am a problem that, that needs to be solved. So, mm-hmm. like, um, do you think... I don't know, we should be reframing the phrase mental health issue or giving it another name? I think, you know, this is interesting because I had a conversation with my colleague recently about the word um, mental health, right? Mm. Even the word mental health is stigmatized because mental health means you're crazy. That Already that means you're crazy. And that is such a neutral yeah. word in itself, right? So yeah. when we were talking about it, like I realized that the whole thing about destigmatization is that we need to make sure whatever word we're using now, we keep using it so that people get used to it. It's not about changing right. the word to make it less scary mm. for people, but to make them understand that this word itself is not scary at all, right? Yeah. So the more we use okay. it, the more we advocate, the more we talk about it, just, you know, even at work, you're just talking to colleagues, even at uh, family gatherings, you're just talking about it more and more, more people would start mm. to realize that, oh, that's mm. not a scary word. Issues are not a scary word, right? Because right. at least it's issues and not disorder. I think people used to talk about mental health disorder or mental mm. illnesses. And mm. that's definitely a lot worse, right, than just issues or concerns. Yeah, so sure. when we come to that point, I think with what I'm doing as well in terms of advocacy, just talking about it more and more helps us to destigmatize it. Because if we change mm. the wordings, mm. it would just create another layer of safety, but fake safety. You know what I mean? Right. Mm. That's very interesting. Mm. So you're saying that actually changing the terms 
not only is it not necessary, it actually prevents people from confronting or even reframing um, the truth. Lah. Yes, exactly. Hmm. I guess when it comes to, like, I do agree with you about like what you're doing with on TikTok and Poker of Cash just to normalize the term mental health, right? Um, mm-hmm. But why do you think we as people are so ashamed either to seek help or to talk about whatever they're going through? I have a feeling there's many factors here, but the main thing is our upbringing because mm. our mm-hmm. you know, Asian generations, right? our traditional Asian families, they already have this stigma. So of course they pass it down to us in subtle ways like mm. don't cry, don't show weakness, don't talk about this, don't talk about that. Or when we try yeah. to talk about something related to mental health, we get dismissed, we get shut down. Mm. Right, we ask. We are asked to just pray. <laughs> so, it's mm. because we have this experience that now, as adults or you know teenagers, we feel like, no, no, this is a weakness. I should not mm. talk about it. I should not show this yeah. weakness. I should just deal with it on my own and hope it goes away. And I think mm. that is the main factor of why we're not more people are not reaching out for help because we mm. have been sort of brainwashed. Mm. in a way, to believe yeah. that we shouldn't get help. Yeah, it's kind of like a condition exactly. since we're at, like, in our like, childhood, right? How do you think our childhood or the way that we're brought up, right, impact mm. us as adults? Oh, I think... <laughs> big question. You all may not know this. It's a big question, but our upbringing usually lends to about 90% of our adult personality. Wow. 90% of your childhood upbringing and your experiences with family has Mm. made you the adult you are today. Mm. Um, Only because when we are so young, our mind is so, our minds are so malleable, right? It's so easily Mm. shaped that anything we see or anything we are told gets stuck there for the rest Mm. of our lives unless we do something about it. Yeah. Right. You know, for example, maybe even even good things, and I'm doing quote unquote marks, right? Good things that our parents mm. tell us, like, "Oh, you are the smartest kid ever." That can make us feel like we will forever be smart, or we are a failure, mm. and that leads mm. to a lot of perfectionism in the future. Of course, when disappointment comes, it is a huge, huge setback, mm. right? So even mm. sort of quote unquote good things could result in issues in our adulthood how do we unlearn like all these expectations or all this conditioning that we have been told since we're young right well if you're really interested of course you can go for therapy (laughs) um but i think generally if you want to do it yourself as well there's there's nothing wrong with that because the whole thing about this firstly is awareness which is why advocacy is so important right people start talking Mm. about it more and more the first thing you need to realize is, am I aware that I am like this because of my past? And then sort of figure out, okay, well, now that I'm this adult, do I still need to hold on to these past beliefs? Are they even helping me at all? Or are they more harmful? Um, And then once you reach that point and you're able to make a decision, then to start relearning, how can I treat myself better? How can I reparent myself in a way that is kind, loving, caring, and supportive. You know, what can I do for myself right now to make sure that I learn from 
this moment on how to treat myself better mm. as I age. So that's, a, I guess, a very simple um, summary of what I would do in a therapy session. Of course, some people mm. come with uh, beliefs that are really, really strong, that it takes a long time to overcome it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think if you don't mind, I would like to ask you a personal question about mm-hmm. like your childhood and your upbringing, right? And how do you think that has impacted you or like, you know, your choices in, in life today? Right. So, you know, the uh, analogy I used just now about being the smartest kid ever. So that was me. Uh, (laughs) I was always told that I'm the smartest in the family. And uh, because, yes, I did get straight A's when I was growing up. But Mm. after a while, you know, when you go to college, things are different. It's not the Mm. same type of, you know, SPM subjects that you just memorize and you answer. Right. It's all different. You have a lot more critical thinking. And I didn't do well in my A-levels. From then on, I had this cycle of, you know, perfectionism and procrastination. Because if I couldn't be perfect, might as well I procrastinate and use that as the excuse of why I'm not getting good grades. It became a very, very toxic cycle for me because I wasn't even trying to put an effort in my studies. And that resulted Mm. in not great A-level results. A-levels itself is hard, but not great Mm. A-levels results. And um, it continued, actually, until my master's, where I realized that, okay, it's time for me to go to therapy, like I mentioned earlier, because Mm. I had this uh, breakdown uh, because of the perfectionism procrastination cycle. Uh, during master's, you have both your subjects that you learn in class and you have to do your training practicum. So that means you are seeing clients, you know, almost every day while having daily subjects classes. So after a while, I could not take it because I did not manage to get a practicum placement. And that broke me because Mm. finally here is proof that I'm not good enough to get another placement right now. Right. So I went for therapy and it changed my life, honestly. Although I've been telling my clients the same exact things, I've never applied it to myself. I've never taken the time to realize that I have been going through this toxic cycle since I was young because of the expectations that were set on me. Even though it wasn't from a bad place, it wasn't uh, bad intentions at all. But it became such a toxic way for me to live my life. It permeated into my relationships, you know, in romantic relationships where I felt like Mm. I needed to be the perfect girlfriend. Mm. I also felt like I needed to be the perfect daughter after a while to make sure that I'm always providing for my parents. Um, Mm. Everything, basically. Perfection in every way. And if I wasn't meeting that impossible standard, I was a failure. Mm. So that, I think, is one of the biggest things that helped shaped me become the therapist I am today because I had a breakdown. (laughs) Not a good thing, but the breakdown actually put me on a different path to realize that this is not healthy and to work on it and Mm. become a better person. What changed in your practice or, you know, when you have sessions with clients before and after you actually went for therapy? Ooh, a lot. I think I could understand them a lot better and I use, because we have this thing 
in therapy where we call self-disclosure. So I used a lot more of that in terms of just sharing my own experiences to relate to them because sometimes you do need to, you know, you would like to see that someone, it, it worked for someone. Right, mm. and so I share my personal experience with some of my clients. I share the exact position that some of them are in that I was in a few years back, and this really helped because not only can I understand them better, I also understand why they weren't changing yet, or why therapy is taking a longer time than it than I would have liked it to, because mm. I went through the same thing, right? And this is a difference that I notice in therapists who have gone for therapy themselves and therapists who have mm. never done that before because right. therapists who have never done that before get really easily frustrated at their clients for not mm. moving forward in therapy mm. right and that's something i've learned that mm. that's not uh that's not easy that's not easy to change when you're being when you're facing something so vulnerable in yourself every single week in your sessions yeah. Um, it's not a nice feeling and some people mm. do actively avoid it. I guess for someone that's going through therapy, right, I, I guess your relationship with therapies is probably very, very important. Yes. How do you know if that therapist or that psychologist is the right fit for you? Oh, good question. Mm. I think generally therapists are, you know, therapists or counsellors, whoever, mm. they are trained to give basic counseling skills. And in these skills, we learn how to be as warm and empathetic as possible. So the moment you step into your session with your therapist, their job is to actually make you feel comfortable and make you feel like you want to tell them about your life, right? If you don't feel that comfort immediately because of the vibes you feel from your therapist, then it's already not a good fit. But if you mm. feel like this could be comfortable, it's just I'm scared to open up, then maybe have mm. a few more sessions and see how things go. Because okay. it's, it's our duty la, to make sure that you are comfortable in the session. Mm. So if you don't feel that, if you feel like your therapist is very cold or very mm. judgmental, I think it's already time to find another one. Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, speaking of like being a trainee and counseling skills and psychiatry, right? Um, there's a lot of mm-hmm. misunderstanding, I guess, and mixed um, messages, I guess, when it comes to uh, the differences between a counsellor, clinical psychologist, clinical psychiatrist. Like, it all sounds oh. like it's the same thing, but apparently <laughs> it's not, you know? So, I mean, yeah. from someone who's actually in the field, right, um, I... You know, what 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 is the distinction between a, a trained counselor, a clinical psychologist, a clinical psychiatrist, or even a regular old psych- psychologist, if there's such a thing? Hmm. I I do have a video on TikTok of this. Oh, you do? Um, okay. But I will try my best. Yes, <laughs> I will try my best to summarize it because I think I was I spoke a bit long in that one that TikTok. Uh, so basically, I think right now we have a lot of different types of psychologists. Right, we have. Uh, clinical psychologists, we have counseling psychologists, we have occupational psychologists, uh, we have so many, like, you know, child psychologists, those kind of things, educational psychologists. Um, Generally, I only talk about the ones that give the 
um, you know, the kind of therapy we see in the movies, right? Right. Mm. So those include counselors, clinical psychologists, mm-hmm. and psychiatrists, right? So all of okay. these, generally anybody who gives therapy can be, you can use the term therapist, lah. Okay, therapy therapist. Okay. So let's get that out of the way first. Okay. All right. So these three things, counselor, clinical psychologist, and psychiatrist. So I start from psychiatrist first. Psychiatrists are people who did their medical degree. They studied to be doctors. And then later they specialized okay. in psychiatry. So they can prescribe medication. Ooh. They can diagnose you with mental illnesses. And they can also give therapy. Okay. okay? Uh, but usually I would say that most government psychiatrists don't really give therapy only because they're too busy. Mm, they don't okay. have time to do therapy sessions. Yeah. And if they do, it's very, very short, like 20 minutes, um, for example. Okay. okay. And then next, we move on to clinical psychologists. So clinical psychologists are people who have done a degree in psychology. Then they did a master's in clinical psychology. And then mm. they have trained. We need to get a certain amount of hours to be able to practice yep. here. Okay. Although we don't have an official licensing board yet, that is in the works with the, I think it's the Allied Health Act coming out, supposed to come out last year, but I don't know when it's coming out next. Okay. Um, we will right. get licensed with that board, all right? And that okay. is also for all the other psychologists I mentioned earlier, the mm-hmm. Allied Health Act, right? So clinical psychologists okay. cannot prescribe medication because we are not doctors. Mm. Wow. Okay. Oh. But we can diagnose mental illnesses. We can do clinical assessments. And assessments are basically okay. those like IQ tests, behavioral assessment, all those things to right. use for a diagnosis. Uh, okay. And we can give therapy. Okay. Okay, clear like, so far? Like talk therapy? <laughs> yes, talk therapy. Yeah. Okay. And then counselors. So this is an informational session. And then counsellors. Yeah. Uh, usually counsellors can do a degree in a lot of different fields and they can still choose to go into master's in counselling. Okay. Right? So after their master's, they have to get licensed by Lembaga Counselling Malaysia, LKM. Um, and it's really, really strict for them because this board exists like way longer than even the term clinical psychology. Okay, so they have oh, to get licensed before they can practice. Yep. Um, and generally, they can give therapy. They can do um, very simple assessments, but they can't do diagnosis. Okay. Only okay. because they're not trained. Uh, yes. Because, uh, okay. yeah, because they're not trained to do assessments, which is a big tool in doing diagnosis. Is that a fair way that I, for example, myself, could use to assess whether I'm ready for change as well? If I plan to do something, mm-hmm. but I don't do it, or um, if uh, I realize suddenly that I'm being confronted about something that I uh, I believe, and I mm-hmm. don't like it, or I, I resist it, and I don't want to, you know, and even though it, even though it may hurt me, or, or stress me out, or, you know, just annoy me. I don't want to do anything about it. Um, is that a fair way to assess my readiness for change? And what can I do to, as you say, increase my ready, my readiness for change? That's a very, very good question because I have had my fair share of 
clients who come for therapy but do not have the uh, you know enough readiness for change to actually work on it at the beginning um mm. but you know generally taking that first step to even go for therapy shows that you want a change right you right. want something to change that's why you're already going for it yeah but then when you you're faced with uncomfortable stuff like your core beliefs your uh you know your unhealthy behavior and you don't want to accept that that is a thing what i tend to do and i've done this for many clients before is i do confront confront them then and then and say you know therapy does work when you put in this effort this amount of effort and i can honestly tell you that we are not going to progress because you have not done your homework and you have not tried this thing for a while so i'm i'm very honest when it comes to my clients um and i guess because of like i said in the beginning we have that warm uh, comfortable beginning that the rapport right. is really good that the relationship is already right. really good that i can confront them like this and i'm not afraid that they will run away right, right. so, so when i confront them like them. this yes exactly i built that trust and then i actually tell them honestly like we're not going to progress in terms of what you want towards your goals so i leave this option up to you you can continue with therapy you know just coming every week or every month and just talking about what you want to talk about or you can take some time reflect on this reflect on your readiness to change and then we can talk about it a bit more when you are actually ready so we can take a break from therapy right now depends on you so i give them this option you can continue you know because they are paying a certain amount right yep, and when you're paying money for that you have a reason so i'm not going to stop yep. you from coming but i want to tell you very honestly that i don't want you to waste your money if you're not getting what i want you to get out of it right so that comes with a a little bit of a nanny mcfee situation where right only when you need me will i be there but when you want me and you don't need me I need you to go like I need to stop therapy with you because you are independent you can deal with things on your own right now. So my job is to actually make you not need therapy anymore, make you not need me anymore. Wow. Um so yeah, I have to figure things out in the middle to see if things are working or not and if they're not, I confront them with this option lah. And usually half like 50% would take a break but come back very soon and say I'm ready. and the other 50% would continue with just regular sessions and one day they would actually say like you know what i'm ready let's let's continue and i want to change again so we okay. we resume whatever uh, structured approach we were using before that yeah i guess my question is like are you agree with you right you know going for therapy is a very vulnerable thing um and there's a lot of changes right because it's kind of um you kind of like unlearning yourself and your identity and all the beliefs that you have kind of uh, built upon yourself growing up it a like how do we learn to be okay with change or to be okay, like you know how do we learn to be uncomfortable this is a very very interesting question thanks for that because how can we learn to be okay being uncomfortable right well the word itself is uncomfortable right and i think generally for me personally i have made great strides to be okay with discomfort 
with being uncomfortable because I don't let it take over my life. I acknowledge the discomfort. I acknowledge that this is a terrible, shitty situation right now. And I don't have to say I'm okay with it. Because when we say I'm okay with this thing, we are sort of placing it there and allowing it to exist and not doing something about it, okay? So what I say is that I acknowledge that it's here and I say this is not okay, but I can, I can leave it here for a while. I can do it. So I tell myself I can. I don't say it's okay. Because when it, there's a subtle difference between saying this is okay versus I can be okay with this. Do you know what I mean? Do you think it comes down to like letting go of things that you can't control, you can't control, as well? Yeah, I mean that's definitely very uncomfortable, right? A lot yeah. of us um, struggle with control, uh, mm. struggle with letting go of things that we can't control. Mm. But if you have found the magic balance for yourself to do that, of course, life would be a lot easier and a lot more peaceful. Um, but it takes a while to get there, of course. Um, it's not easy. It may require a breakdown or two, like in my case, but you will, you can get there eventually. You definitely can. Um, so I think the whole thing about that is just to know that we can't control a lot of things, but we can control some. So why is our focus on the things we can't control rather than what we can we can ask ourselves that and then shift our focus back to things we can control. That's the easiest way I can summarize it. Not the easiest way to do it, uh, per se. But, you know, we can start with little, little things. Wow. I feel like I was in a session myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, um, speaking of like pandemic, right? I guess eventually we're going to get there. How do you think uh, COVID-19 has really impacted the mental health um, area, I guess? And, and could you, like, you know, what are your thoughts about, like, the mental health, like, the, the healthcare, the mental health care system in Malaysia and also mm-hmm. our accessibility to it, especially, like, during this time as well? I think a lot of issues were brought up when the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, one being the lack of access and the lack of affordability of mental health Mm. services because yes we have government clinics and hospitals which are really really affordable Mm. but they don't have enough time for you they don't have enough you know workers or staff members Mm. to provide quality care you know so that was a big deal the moment the first mco hit um, sorry, yeah, the first MCO happened, right? Because a lot of people are now working from home. A lot of people mm. are facing deaths of relatives and family members. And the burnout that came with working from home, the grief that came mm. from death all around us, it, re- it resulted in a huge spike in mental health issues in Malaysia. And especially suicide attempts and cases. Mm. So... With this problem, with the accessibility and affordability, I think a lot of people stepped up and switched to online therapy. Actually, you're supposed to have 
a license or at least a certificate to do online therapy, you know. But because mm. oh, we okay. don't have the time to get a certificate, we just had mm. to do it. We just had to make do with what we could, try our best to be confidential mm. um, and just see what happens, right? So that happened and a lot of people went online and it is definitely more accessible. But with mm. the term of affordability, we had some that were affordable. I had a post going viral a while back about affordable therapy services, most of them by trainees around the range mm. of, uh, you know, below 100, mostly about 50 ringgit. Yeah. Even that can be not affordable for some people. Yeah. Mm. Right? Because if we really take a step back and look at it, okay, maybe they can pay 50 ringgit. Do they even have a laptop? Do they have Wi-Fi connection? Do they have privacy in their homes? to do therapy and a lot of people don't so a lot of people are still struggling because they don't have these factors that allow them to access therapy unfortunately these are some of the people that uh, it becomes really bad for them and they end up in a really deep depression or suicidal Mm. uh, with suicidal behaviors yeah so the fact is that this pandemic hit and it brought up all these issues that we had in our healthcare system in Malaysia. Mm. And it was really uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of health practitioners to realize just how bad it was before this, just how inaccessible and unaffordable it was. Mm. So I think, you know, even though a lot of the psychologists I know are burnt out, a lot of us are also Mm. doing something else other than our full-time jobs to provide yeah. something. So I'm doing the advocacy, I'm providing free you know, information and knowledge about mental health. I have some people volunteering at NGOs for free you know, therapy services for people who can't afford it. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, we're all just trying our best to provide because we have the qualifications. Yeah. That's, you brought up such an interesting point that the pandemic actually brought to light um, a lot of the inadequacies of um, the mental health system in Malaysia, right? And mm-hmm. it's not just about the mental health system, but generally, uh, this whole pandemic has really shone a light on um, our inadequacies as a country, our coping systems, and even our in- own individual lives, right? Um, and you mentioned mm-hmm. something very interesting as well that's very uncomfortable for many mental health practitioners to really look at what's what's happening or what, what we lack. So it, it's a bit of a different topic, I guess, but is so, you know, having something out there that confronts us about something that we are, where we are lacking in or inadequate is obviously uncomfortable. Is it always bad? It feels bad, right? For sure. I mean, <laughs> it's not... definitely it feels terrible but I think without this we would never have known just how bad things were Mm. we would never have known about these inadequacies that we have for mental health care especially in Malaysia Mm. right because I mean I think the 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 penal code for you know for criminalizing suicide has already existed for many many years right it's always been there but nobody yeah. really focused so much on it until things started getting so much worse. 
until we started mm. getting a crazy and really scary amount of suicide cases in Malaysia. I'm not sure what the current ratio is, but I last heard that it was an average of our... Sorry? Yeah, I, that was the one. Average of three per day. And that's scary. Wow. That is three people per day thinking that ending their life is a better option than staying alive right now. Mm. So we need the discomfort sometimes. Okay, I think I just want to touch a bit off. You spoke about, you know, suicide cases, right? Um, mm. And I think yeah. briefly spoke about Section 309 of the Penal Code. I think yeah. Malaysia is like one of the few countries in the world that actually criminalize um, suicide, right? Yeah. So as a psychologist, I would love to hear your perspective on, you know, your view on suicide being a crime, either in Malaysia mm-hmm. or in, in another country. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I think the whole, uh, the whole issue with this is mm-hmm. not that suicide is a crime or not. It's that mm-hmm. they punish people who attempt suicide with jail mm-hmm. time or a fine. Mm-hmm. Right, because... The whole thing about suicide is that this person has reached a tipping point in their mental Mm. health that suicide Mm. is an option. So Mm. they attempt Mm. it. That already shows you that this person needs mental health help, not punishment. Mm. Right? So that's the whole issue with it. Right? It's it's really, really inhumane. And I think what's even more inhumane is the way they treat them when they mm. go to when they get arrested or when they go to jail because this person is already struggling and you put a yeah. fine on top of that you put them in debt maybe they maybe their suicide was because of that mm. you yeah. put more struggles on this person who's to say after this jail time or this fine they won't try it again mm. it yeah. is a very inhumane and this time they they'll actually succeed right yeah exactly mm. Very inhumane, very ineffective for preventing suicide cases in Malaysia. Mm. So as a psychologist, when I hear this, like like you mentioned, uh, Sam, just now, it's more likely that people will succeed because they try harder, because they don't want to face getting arrested. They don't want to face this type of punishment for not completing their suicide, Right. So that makes it really hard because now most of the cases are successful. They are not just attempts anymore. Most of them are successful right now. So it gets to a point where I'm angry, I think, as a psychologist and a mental health advocate, I'm angry that this still exists. Because I don't know how much you guys know about the history of this penal code. It came from the time of the uh, Indian penal code way, way back when when the British were there and they took that law, that whole, you know, code law, everything, and applied it here in Malaysia. So this is not just our religion thing. It actually came from the Indian Penal Code when the British came, you know, and gave us this law. So there's nothing to do with current religion standards or laws to, to have this. But it definitely has to do with maintaining. Definitely re- reduce the risk and rates of suicide by providing more help. Than- How do I help someone who has attempted suicide or is thinking of attempting suicide um, 
maybe what if I I because the the, the feelings that I experience when I know someone who is either attempting suicide or uh, has attempted suicide and and survived, right? It's it's traumatizing for me as well, for as someone mm. who is um, who who knows either you know whether it's a next of kin or or I'm their friend or coworker or someone who just knows them, right? Like, uh, I would say, confusion, fear, sadness. Um, grief, anxiety, anger, and that's just from me yeah. being, me knowing that someone I know has attempted suicide or is thinking of 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 really ending their life. Um, yeah. Yeah. What? How do I deal with that? I honestly think that a lot of these feelings that I would say most of most of us would have when we hear that someone we know or are close to is thinking about suicide or has attempted it before. Um, most of these feelings come from the fact that we cannot help more than right than what we can do. We cannot do as much. We can't actually stop them. We can't change this. We can't take away the suicidal feelings that they have. That's where all of these feelings are coming from. And it's very, very valid because we don't want our friend or this loved one to die. Right, so of course, it's it's like complicated grief, right? Where there's a possibility this person could succeed one day, and what if I don't know? And if that happens, I may blame myself. I may blame myself for not doing more or enough. But the fact is, we can't do much as regular citizens. We can't do much. You know, we have to also be okay with that. We also have to acknowledge that. What I can do at this time is to provide support. They may not ask for it. They may not accept it. But I can provide support. I can still be here. Well, um, thank you so much, Amanda. It's been a real pleasure and joy uh, speaking with you. Unfortunately, the time we have has come to a close, Amanda. Uh, and with all the heavy talk about mental illness and care and being uncomfortable, I'd just like to, to end on a positive note and have something that the, the listeners can take away from as well. To our podcast, we usually have our last two questions for our guests. So, um, <laughs> yep. today our, so our, our first of the last two today is uh, what gives you hope? Honestly, I think that the youth gives me hope right now. The Malaysian mm. youth that are fighting for a better Malaysia. Mm. I honestly get so inspired and I feel so hopeful when I see their efforts because we have so many youth-led movements right now. Yeah. And that is amazing. You know, we this was not the thing. This was, this was not happening a few years back. And it's it's really blowing my mind right now to see that you know, things like Undi 18 have come so close, right? Even Missy Solidarity, I think that is youth-led as well yes, to is, work yeah. on decriminalizing suicide, you know? And it's, it's crazy to see that because I feel like as a generation, like, I'm not going to assume you guys ages, lah, but for me, <laughs> for me as a, as a 
true millennial, I would say, we have given up a bit easily. We have given up a bit easier compared to the youth. So that is really something that gives me hope. And actually, it's something that inspired me to start advocating as well. Wow. You heard that youth? Because I saw. You inspired Amanda. <laughs> Thank you so much, youths. <laughs> Um, Yvonne, do you want to take the last question? Yes. Um, if you could give someone a 30-day experiment to do, what would that be? I think it's our standard question that we go for. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I would begin with generally try being kind to yourself every single day of this exp- and don't skip Okay, <laughs> be kind to yourself. I'm talking about self-compassion, right? So a lot of times we know how to be kind to other people. We know how to be compassionate to other people, but we don't usually apply it to ourselves. We are very, very critical and harsh on ourselves when we make mistakes, when we face setbacks and challenges. And I think that it could be worth it to just try to have a bit more self-compassion, especially right now during this pandemic. It is not easy. And if you're struggling, that is completely okay and completely valid. So do try to be a bit more kind to yourself. Once again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Just before we end, could you give the listeners um, a way that they can contact you or if they want to collaborate with you? uh, What are some pages or sites or where can they find you at oh all right so i do mental health advocacy on instagram and tiktok on instagram my handle is pocket of care um and on tiktok my handle is amonde xvr if you don't know how to spell that i guess they will write it down in the bio below um And for Instagram, I have a lot of self-care tips, self-help, you know, just information in infographics and illustrations. And on TikTok is basically me answering a lot of commonly asked questions about therapy, mental health, psychology, and so on. You can reach me through any of these two. All right. So um, uh, thank you so much for your... Uh, knowledge, experience. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah. Yep. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, pleasure to have. And for all of you out there listening, thanks for listening to this. Stay curious.